for this time to preach your word. Thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word. What a gift your word is to us, Father. Father, we need you as we contemplate what it is that you have said to us, all that you have given us in your scripture. Father, which you have given us all that is sufficient to grow us properly through Christ. And so let us have ears to hear it this morning, Father. We believe in your Holy Spirit. Would you use him in our lives today? In Jesus' name, amen. It was almost to the day, it was three years ago that Hannah and I moved to Maine. Now, we haven't been here all that time, but it was three years ago that we moved to Maine. It was December 14th, 2019, that we crossed that state line across the bridge. December 14th, today's the 18th, so we're uh, three years and four days officially. Was, was there a leap year in there? I don't know, three years and four days. I'd been to Maine twice before. Hannah had, had never been to the state of Maine before we moved here. As we finally crossed that state line after uh, caravanning across the country with a moving truck and a Jeep, we glimpsed a sign. Not from God, just a sign. (laughs) Welcome to Maine. The way life should be. The way life should be. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I love these signs on the road. I I love the message that, that somebody came up with, some slogan that somebody felt like this captures who we are. I've always enjoyed those. I used to take pictures of them on the side of the road. Uh, And I think that's because I I went to high school in a town that sign said, a town in the Midwest, that sign said, Welcome to Fairfield, where seeds are planted and dreams are harvested. What an incredible sign. That's a little much for a town of 300, don't you think? (laughs) Oh, well. Nebraska's sign, in case you're wondering, Nebraska's sign says, The Good Life. It's pretty good. Ohio has promised me that there's so much to discover. Maybe one day I'll stop and discover some of that. We've just passed through. But on December 14th, 2019, we were promised that Maine is the way life should be. That's what Maine is. Now, if I went around this room and I asked everyone what the should be in the way life should be, what that should means... I might get as many answers as there are people in this room. What exactly does that mean? I don't doubt the sign, but we didn't know what to expect in Maine. We, we came here because we believed that the Lord was, was leading us this way. That was the answer to a lot of prayer where God might call me one day to do pastoral ministry. We saw doors opening, and so we, we came. Fast forward to December 18th, 2022. That's today. And I can tell you that my interpretation of the sign, the way life should be, has been answered in many ways in the life of a local church, a church that we've had the privilege of being a part of for the past two years. I believe that this church is the way church life should be. I don't believe that this church is perfect in the sense that it's full of totally sanctified people. I don't believe that it's full of perfect leadership nor a place that has every theological nuance sorted. 
But I do believe that this is a place that understands its position well in the gospel. That's the testimony of this church. It's a church aware that it's made up of broken people and led by imperfect elders, assembled under the blood of Jesus Christ and gathered to the glory and the praise of his work before a holy God. That's what this church is. And I believe that the the actions of this church align with that conviction soundly. A church that's working out that conviction with fear and trembling. That's what we've experienced in this church. In short, I believe that this church is the way life should be. My evidence of that is found in the way that that we've been so loved and cared for in this kingdom-focused, Christ-exalting church. Jeannie, can I use your name in this sermon? (laughs) Jeannie Gilpin, thank you. Jeannie Gilpin approached me a few weeks ago, and very sweetly, as she does, as you know, expressed how this church has been so fortunate to have such good fits over the last few years. She mentioned to me that uh, when Pastor Blake was on sabbatical a number of years ago, Jaron came in, filled the pulpit. He was so well loved. Um, Not going to do it. He was so well loved and such a good fit in this body. And that we were so fortunate again to have such a good fit in Hannah and I. Really sweet sentiment. And as much as I appreciate that, I don't think, uh, I I don't have to know Jaron to know that I don't think that it's him that was the good fit. Uh, Though I think he may have been. I think that's far more a reflection on this body's incredible ability to love people well. Rather than the merit of those who are coming in. That's what we've experienced anyway. That this body loves well. You are all a very loving church. And we've been so grateful to be a part of it. The testimony of this church is to what we just read in Leviticus. To welcome the outsider. To welcome those in who are sojourning among you. So thank you all for loving us for the last two years. For loving us so well. And as I I reflected on that in preparation of, of preaching this last sermon to you. I'm caught by that stark reality that this is the way life should be. This should be the normative experience of the church. That's how it ought to be. Because the gospel should transform your interactions with others. That's how it should be. Because you, who are an outsider before God, have been so loved and so embraced by your Father in heaven, based entirely on the merits of another, that this ought to, this should, this must pull us to love others as we have been loved. That's the reality of that. Like, like gravity that always pulls the ball to the ground, so the effect of the gospel always pulls God's people to love others as they have been loved, at least when they're understanding it rightly. We know that in principle, right? We are to love our neighbor. And as much as we are to love our neighbor, if you define neighbor as anyone in the world, how much more, how much differently then should we love others with whom we have Christ in common? How much more should there be a genuine and a deep bond between those of the Christian faith, between those who are Christians together? The answer is the bond should be very deep. 
And that that is the, I think, the magic, if I can use that word, of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church. And all churches that express a belief in the gospel and strive to live that out well. So just as gravity compels what goes up to come down, so the love of God compels a deep love to one another as they grow in their understanding of the gospel. That's the way life ought to be. And though that is a very special, it's very special to be a part of that here, it should not be exclusive to this church. That should be the normal life, the way life should be among all believers. Believers should have a special bond together because of the gospel. And that's why I've chosen the text that I've chosen this morning. Because that's one of the things that Paul shows us in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. He models the love that a Christian should have for his fellow believers. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be in verses 3 to 11. The book of Philippians is one of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. He wrote it to a church. And he wrote it while he was in prison. And in Philippians 1, 3 to 11, Paul writes this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. <clears throat> Paul shows us what is normal in the interaction among believers. This is how Christians ought to interact with another. If you have been transformed by the gospel, this is the typical response to other believers. It's what we're called to as believers in the gospel. It's what we ought to strive for. At least it's what the gospel ought to lead us to do. And I speak to you as a collective this morning. But I want to challenge you as you read this and think individually. Does Paul's expression here to the church in Philippi line up with the way that you approach and the way that you interact with other Christians? Is there a difference between your interaction with believers and unbelievers? We'll see that for very specific reasons. We should interact differently with believers. That we should have a special love for the church, a desire to join in fellowship with the church, and a desire to longingly see the church grow. That special closeness that, that we have experienced here in this short time ought to be the mark of the church, and it ought to come down to an individual level in each of our hearts. God is encouraging you in this text this morning to continue on that path, to continue to be that kind of church, that you would stay on course in this, both as you interact with another, one another, and, and with future residents, 
says, you've been a blessing to us. To continue in the gospel in such a way that you continue to love all of those who come into this church. Because gospel-fueled interaction among believers is special. And it's unique. Paul shows us three marks of gospel-fueled interaction among believers in this text, I think. At least three. Gospel-fueled interaction is marked by at least three things. I'll just tell you what they are so you know where we're going. Those three things that mark gospel-fueled interaction are affection, camaraderie, and longing. Affection, camaraderie, and longing. That's what marks gospel-fueled interaction. So start with the first. Gospel-fueled interaction is marked with affection. Affection first. Paul begins this letter with a list that seems to flow from his great affection for the church in Philippi. He can't think of these people, even in prison, mind you, where Paul is writing this, in his own desperate situation, without welling up for emotion for these people. I'm sure it's true that that he had an attachment to them as some sort of spiritual father, but he doesn't use that language here. This is the language of equals. Uh, Two peoples who have been transformed by the same gospel work. And Paul is is very affectionate for the, the commonality that they have in the gospel and how they have received it along with him. That they have that in common, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This reflects the feeling that we ought to normally have when we interact with one another under Christ. It ought to stir affections in us. We're to be moved by specific emotion. Paul lists four specific affections that it stirs for him here in this text. First, he says, you'll notice in verse 3, he says that he's thankful for them. I thank my God always in remembrance of you, he says. Paul is thankful because of these people. Even from prison, Paul cannot help but to be drawn to thankfulness when he thinks of this church. Are you thankful for other believers in the same way? That seems simple enough, but, but what does that look like to be thankful for other believers? In the midst of, of your circumstances, in the midst of your busyness, are you celebrating what God has done and what God is doing in the life of other believers? That's what that looks like. That's what Paul is doing here. Do you celebrate other believers with thanks to God? Are you praying for the body? Noticing when your brother or sister is growing and thanking God for that. I love that that this is an emphasis of this church, that we try to do that regularly. If you've ever attended a church business meeting, right, that's what we call them. Sometimes we call them that, business meeting. It's hardly business. Time is devoted to this practice of noticing ways in which the church is growing. Individuals in the church are growing. Time to notice how how others are growing and to publicly thank God for that work. That's how it should be. Paul expresses a thankfulness for the body here. But he also expresses a joy for this church. A joy. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you making my prayer with joy. That thankfulness leads him to joy. Along with thankfulness, Paul expresses this thankfulness with joy. It's hard to separate the two, isn't it? To have a grateful heart 
due to thankfulness will inevitably spill over into joy, right? That's often the case. Are you joyful before other Christians? It's a good question for us. Are you joyful before other Christians? Karl Barth says that joy is the simplest form of gratitude. Joy is the simplest form of gratitude. Paul expresses that he's joyful with this church. But he also expresses, turning a corner a bit, a confidence in the Philippian church. He has a great confidence in this church. In verse 6 he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We love that verse, don't we? I love to hear that. That I know, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Paul has that incredible, unshakable confidence in the Philippian church's gospel that they believe in. And that Jesus will continue that work in them. He will continue that faith in them. He's not threatened by them in any way, but he's confident for them. He's hopeful for them. And he's encouraging them, knowing that they will grow. You know, as believers in Christ, we we know that Christ did all the work, right? That's what we believe. That's what the gospel means. Jesus saves us and he makes us holy in an ongoing way. Paul is expressing a trust here in God's work in this church when he says this. He knows that he who began that good work will see it all the way through. He will not abandon them. He trusts them. But even more, he trusts Christ. He has a great confidence in the faith of this church. Do you have a confidence in the faith of those around you? Those whom you are in fellowship with? That ought to be normal in the church. Finally, we see Paul's great love for the church. In verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. That line, I hold you in my heart, I take that to be a special kind of love, right? A very affectionate kind of love. Paul has great affection for this church. And this sums it up, doesn't it? It's right for people with the gospel in common to feel this way about each other too. We ought to have a special affection for one another. It's the affection that makes it hard to leave this church. That makes it difficult for us in many ways to go out from here. It's the affection that causes Hannah and I to love each of you. To love this church. This is a special place. It's right for us to feel this way about each other. We should not avoid that. And we should never feel rivalry. We should never feel jealousy, suspicion, complacency, a closed offness, a forgetfulness toward one another. Those are antithetical to everything that Paul is talking about here. It's not the language of rivals. This is not the language of those whom you remember once a year and then, and then move on. Those responses that, that Paul expresses, those are brought on through believing the gospel. Because we see this evidenced in how God responds to his own people. Through the gospel, God is joyful before his people. He's confident in them because of the work of Christ. And he's loving toward his church. And we mimic God when we feel that way toward each other. We're growing to be more like God when we feel that way to each other. Gospel-fueled interaction is marked with affection. It's marked with affection. But as nice as affection is, we we should not stop alone at a great affection. 
Paul pushes it forward. Gospel-fueled interaction is second, brought with camaraderie. Gospel-fueled interaction is marked with camaraderie. Paul continues in verse 7, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's gospel-born affection for these, these other believers leads him to a natural camaraderie with them. He feels joined with them, in other words, in his work and with the commonality of what they believe. He's joined together with them. You are all partakers with me of grace, he says. We're in this together. Affectionate toward one another, yes, but also bound together, bound on a mission going forward with the gospel. He writes, partakers with me, both in my imprisonment and confirmation of the gospel. And that's interesting. Partakers with me in my imprisonment. They're certainly not in prison with him, are they? The answer is no. But what are they doing but joining him in his purpose for being in prison? They understand why he's in prison, because he has preached the gospel. And they're with him in that sense. They support what he has done that has landed him in prison. They're united in the cause of the gospel, believing the gospel together and holding on to it as a witness, testifying to it together. They're like lights on a runway, right? You ever see the lights on a runway if you land at night in an airport? One light doesn't do a whole lot of good, does it? It could show you maybe where you should start landing or maybe where you should stop landing. But it doesn't tell you much more than that. But a string of lights, a string of lights guides a plane in, doesn't it? Shows it where to go. So Paul is saying that he's united in that way to the Philippian church. On mission together, lights strung together to display the path of the glory of God in the gospel. That's what he's doing. That's the camaraderie that they have together on mission together so that the world may know the glory of God and joined together, confirming the gospel to each other. Not just to those looking in, but to each other, holding on to one another so that they can strengthen one another in their weakness. So as Paul is discouraged in his imprisonment, so as maybe they're discouraged in their life, they see each other's example of gospel faith. And they're strengthened by one another. That camaraderie binds them and strengthens them to trust in Christ all the more. That's what believers do for each other. They live in a collective knowledge of the gospel. Affirming its reality in their lives together as they watch each other interact. As as a brother in despair watches his Christian brother, he's strengthened by his faith. As I watch a sister struggle... And yet come back to Christ. I'm encouraged by that. And it causes me and propels me on to new growth in the gospel. To continue to linger in the gospel. That's a camaraderie together that we have to one another. The gospel creates that camaraderie of a community. That's why churches form. There's a natural inclination for churches to gather. Isn't that interesting? Historically. How Christians have always gathered together. Have you ever thought about that? From the very beginning, after the Spirit comes on the believers in the book of Acts, the very next thing that's happening, the natural disposition that they all have is suddenly to gather together. That's what they do. They, they have Christ in common and they want to be together. 
And throughout history, even when it was difficult, even when persecution was on the line, the ever-present reality of the Christian experience was the gathering of believers together. The camaraderie, the community, to strengthen one another, to build each other up in the gospel, to affirm the testimony of the gospel together. So that when persecution comes, when trial comes, when sin comes, your Christian brothers and sisters can carry you in the gospel, can point you to the gospel. And here, church, right here in Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, we're doing that very thing 2,000 years after Pentecost. Exactly what the church was inclined to do. Here we are, 2,000 years later, a culture and a world apart, still gathering in the name of Christ. That's what Christians do. That's what the gospel does in our lives. That's what this building was constructed for. Of course, Scripture calls us to gather, right? But it's never an empty law that we begrudgingly obey. That's never the intent there. But because it's the, the evidence of what it means to a believer to gather together. Bearing witness to the camaraderie of the gospel together. Like Paul is talking about here. The natural outpouring of the soul that's been transformed by the gospel. People gathering to glorify God with their lives and then conspiring against anything that serves to disservice his name. You know, that's why to be antagonistic or indifferent toward the community under the gospel is a cause to check yourself. Whenever that comes up in scripture, it's always with a warning. Do you notice that? John writes it this way. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's strong. For he does not love his brother. That's stronger. Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John doesn't seem to have a category for the kind of person who says that they believe the gospel, that they believe in Jesus, but neglects the community of believers. Do you see how essential that is in the life of the believer? They go hand in hand for the, the very reason that Paul is saying here, that they strengthen his faith. Like a muscle to your skeleton. Without it, you don't have the strength to move forward. That's what happens to the believer who attempts to live without the community of believers. Paul in prison finds camaraderie with the people of God who have the gospel in common. Even in prison. He clings to that. That's what he's going back to here. You know, it's so inherent to the Christian belief system that the New Testament can, can even scarcely conceive of a Christian outside of the community, outside of that camaraderie. It doesn't exist. All the letters of the New Testament, just take them as an example. All of these letters in the New Testament, including this letter to the Philippians, are written to local camaraderies, local communities of the church, except for one. And that one letter is a personal call to welcome a brother back into the community. The community is so central to the body. So when we believe the gospel, our experience is to gather together, to join together. The local church is assumed in Scripture. The testimony of Christians is that they're naturally assembling. A camaraderie, that is the natural disposition of the heart of a believer. That's your local church. And that's the church that we found here. A people who gather on Sundays to worship, just as we're doing now, 
But then they gather to live the Christian life together after that. To be partakers in that grace, as Paul puts it. That's why we have discovery groups. That's why there's discipleship groups. And that's why there's just individual discipleship blossoming in this church. Right? We're not a church that that builds uh, programs for people. Because we want to see the gospel naturally do this. Build that kind of community. What a blessing it's been to be a part of that kind of community. To watch that happen. To watch it flourish. To see the Spirit's work in that testimony of the gospel. But you know, it doesn't stop at the local church. At this church, notice, notice that Paul is not actually a part of the Philippian church. Do you notice that? Even outside of your local church community, gospel preaching churches hold up other gospel preaching churches as a camaraderie together, celebrating their devotion together to the gospel. That's why we pray for other churches here. We celebrate our mission together as lights on that runway. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, of this gospel I was made a minister, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's how we ought to view other churches. As a testimony to the nations of the glory of God and the gospel. Maybe you've seen my map on the wall over here. If you haven't, you should look at it. I have dots on the map that that represent gospel preaching churches throughout the state of Maine. They're scattered throughout Maine. But we want to fill that map, don't we? With lights on the runway that will lead the world to see the glory of God. That will help them to land in the gospel and the glory of God. Other churches are not a threat to us. They're a camaraderie. They're a conspiracy to show the world the wisdom of God in the gospel. That's what they are. And so as we leave here, we go as just another dot on the map. As a part of that conspiracy among churches. To show the world the glory of the gospel along with you. Partners in that mission in Down East Maine. In New England. Joined into the United States and dots all over the world as a testimony. To what God has done. A group of believers who gather together. And then groups of those groups. That proclaim that reality. The gospel fuels great affection. And working outward fuels a camaraderie. Among believers. And lastly gospel fueled interaction. Is marked with longing. Gospel fueled interaction is marked with longing. Paul finishes this section by writing, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and be, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now we could take that in detail, but I want to take it as a, as a large chunk here. And think about Paul who's sitting in chains in prison, who's now turning his attention to a burden for the growth of the people of God. Isn't that remarkable? Even in the midst of his turmoil, possibly facing his own death, Paul is, on the one hand, confident that God will see this through to completion, and on the other, burdened for the growth of this church. 
burdened that they continue, burdened that they be growing more like Christ. Paul had such a remarkable burden for the churches. He spent his life traveling and preaching and planting churches. He had a strong devotion to them, a desire to see them grow, not grow numerically. Right? That's a scheme for into scripture. But in their understanding of the gospel, that's what he wanted to see grow. In fact, it was this burden that eventually did take his life. He just wouldn't stop preaching out of that burden for the church. But that burden is not simply because he was an apostle. That's a Christian perspective, church. We are to be burdened for one another, longing for each other's growth. Just as Paul is longing here, burdened for the growth of his churches. <clears throat> Paul tells the Philippians just a, a few verses after this passage in chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each other... Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. As, as Paul is longing for their growth, as he's burdened by it, so he's calling the church to be burdened for one another's growth. To be joined together on mission, but as an offshoot of that mission, to be interested, burdened for each other's growth. Even putting that burden ahead of yourself, he says. Desiring your brother or sister to grow ahead of your own needs. That's big. <clears throat> Excuse me. Church, are you here for you or for others? Individual, are you here for you this morning or are you here for the growth of others? Do you gather here because you need something from the gathering? It's true that you do. That's true. We're all refreshed in the gathering. And there's season where we need to just come and be ministered to. That's certainly true. We all need to grow in recognizing that need to be here. But if you stop there, then Paul is saying that the gospel hasn't done its full work in you. Are you here for just you or are you burdened for the growth of those around you? On the other side, I've heard people who are professing Christians say that they're not involved in the church because they feel that it really doesn't have anything to offer them. But that's really a misunderstanding of many things. But among them is the impulse that things are primarily about you and what you need. You know, in our self-esteem culture, we can, we can hardly picture things that are not about us. That's so ingrained in us from the time that we're very young. It's laid out for us, right? Restaurants and businesses are designed to serve us and our needs. We have on-demand and instant delivery. Schools promote a self-focus. is the most important thing that they need to instill in children. We have a culture of affirmation where everyone has to be accepted just the way that they are. Well, that's a byproduct of the self-centeredness of the individuality of our culture. But you know that the gospel is at work in your heart when you don't long for those things. When you long for the growth of others 
and you're burdened by that. When you're burdened to see your brother and sister grow. Why? Why is that the case? Because the gospel is oriented at a very outwardly focused goal. Inherently, it's an outwardly focused goal. Paul clarifies that here. If I can sum up these three verses at the end, he writes, I yearn, dot, 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 to the glory and praise of God. That's what he's pointing toward. I yearn the end of of self-centeredness and and point to God-centeredness. That's his focus. Like an arrow pointing to the glory of God, we are to do everything we can to magnify and point to his name. And that happens by, by longing for the growth of those around us so that God's glory may be known in them. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul is expressing his burden here in prayer. He's praying for the church. I encourage you again, pray through your directory. Pray for those that you're members with in the church. I'm so blessed by the prayer of this church. Did you enjoy that corporate prayer that we had earlier? It's so encouraging to hear the church pray, to hear your prayers every Sunday. And I'm sure that that's just a taste of a bigger picture, that there's much more prayer going on outside of these walls. I know that you are a church that prays for each other. Continue to pray for each other. That's Paul's expression of the burdens here. Pray for us as we go out. Pray for Beals Island. Pray for the ministry to go forward there. Prayer is the way that you do that. Encourage one another. You know, this residency is incredible. Continue to keep it, please. But keep it with the kingdom mindset. What a God-honoring ambition this church has to be linked with people, with pastors specifically, so that you can send them out. That's an incredible vision. So as you think about how to do that well, maybe you're thinking through, okay, how do we do that well? What were those points again? I just got to be loving. I just got to be confident. I just got to be joyful and thankful. But these aren't things that we put on church. And I was talking to Dory about how well we've been received this week, just how this church has loved us and cared for us so well. How it's so outwardly focused. And you know what she told me? She said something really interesting. I love this. She said, we didn't really plan that. (laughs) There was no meeting where we decided to be that way. That's what she told me. I'm certain that that's true. You can't decide to be that way, right? Like it's some kind of New Year's resolution. Maybe you could for a little while, but I think you'll show through in the end. No, the reality is that's the evidence of the gospel at work in your life. That's what's going on here. You believe the gospel. You see your sin. You know Jesus and his loving work to overcome your sin. And you put on the work of Jesus together as you interact with each other on that gospel. And then you do it again next week. And you do it again the next week. And you continue to do it over a lifetime. That's the formula for ongoing healthy interaction. Southwest Harbor, please continue to be burdened for each other's growth. For the kingdom. Long for us, as Paul is longing here. Long for each other. Long for the growth of the church in Beals. But do it by your love for God. Do it as you experience the gospel and understand your place in that more and more. 
my prayer for Beals is that they would, if they're not already, growing in this same way. And getting there just as you are there and have gotten there by understanding the gospel and its implications for, for your life more and more. To clarify, I don't want Beals to be another Southwest Harbor Congregational Church. That's not what I want for them. But don't hear that the wrong way. I want them to be a gospel church. That's what I want them to be. Just as you are a gospel church. A.W. Tozer said it so well. He said, 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. That's the standard that we're all going for. That's the gospel. Tune your hearts to the fork of the gospel. Continue to be a church that displays the way life should be. Continue to be a sign for those who come in your door for the way life should be. Show the next resident the way church life should be so that he can go and be a gospel preacher. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Father, thank you. Thank you for the incredible blessing that it is to be a part of this church. Thank you that this church is not special in the sense that it's figured something out that no one else could figure out, but that it's special solely because your gospel has penetrated it. Father, let that be true of the churches in our state, the churches in our country, the churches in our world. Father, let it be true of those who go out from here, those whom you send into their various ministries. Let them be gospel preachers. Father, would you penetrate our hearts with the gospel? Tune us to the fork of the gospel so that we can be a loving people. In Jesus' name, amen.